Scientists have been saying for years that it's just a matter of time before something like this happens. In September 2019, the World Health Organization published its annual report. It's called the Global Emergency Preparedness Report. And they wrote, and I quote, there is a very real threat of a rapidly moving, highly lethal pandemic of a respiratory pathogen killing 50 to 80 million people and wiping out nearly 5% of the world's economy. So that's from September 2019. And thankfully, I don't think 50 to 80 million people have died, but we've definitely lost like a huge chunk of the world's economy. The fact that the novel coronavirus hit us and it hit us so hard is a matter of negligence. It's not even about conspiracy, it's just about plain negligence. Last time we talked about how pandemics are not simply natural, that they exist inside political economies, how a disease emerges, how it spreads, who it impacts the most and the least. All of this has to be understood inside a political economy or sets of social and power relations. Specifically, we talked about the Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919 and how it impacted colonial India, and we argued that it could not be understood outside of the British colonial system that existed in India at the time. There's one aspect that we didn't really go into, and that's how a new disease emerges. Broadly, the way that we think about this is that it's just natural, like something happens in nature and somehow a disease goes from wildlife to human beings. Maybe somebody eats some kind of exotic animal or something, and that's really to blame. We individualize it, or we just say it's a natural problem. So we can be angry at world governments because they were not prepared to handle the pandemic, but we let them off that there's nothing they could have done to prevent the virus from infecting humans in the first place. But it's a bit more complicated than that. And there's an evolutionary biologist whose name is Rob Wallace, and uh, there's the economic geographer, Mike Davis. We've already spoken about his work last time. And they argue that even the emergence of diseases, their zoonosis or how they get transmitted from wildlife to humans cannot be understood outside of specific political economies. They especially point to the political economy of livestock production under capitalism. Let's tease out Wallace and Davis's arguments. And to do that, let's start with you going into a restaurant to buy a chicken sandwich. Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we're going to be talking about the relationship between politics and economics broadly, but also about how political economy can refer to a lot more than just politics and economics. We're going to be inviting scholars to share with us the work that they're doing from different disciplines and different perspectives. I am your host, Noman Ali. I am an assistant professor of political economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. So maybe you've eaten at uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken or a CP five-star restaurant. It's a fast food restaurant. It's like KFC, it sells chicken products, and it's been in Pakistan for maybe three or four years. Most of the people who can afford this kind of branded fast food are elites, upper middle class, and up. And CP5 Star doesn't exist everywhere in Pakistan, but if you've ever eaten there or if you've seen them, then you know they're there and there's a great demand for them. The CP in CP5 Star stands for Charuan Pukpan. That is a Thai name. It's from Thailand. 
Charu and Pukpan Group, or CP Group as it's better known, is one of the world's largest food and agriculture corporations. It's big, big, big business, agribusiness. And it's not just food and agriculture. It's actually one of the world's largest conglomerates. It has investments in retail, media, telecoms, e-commerce, property, automotive, pharmaceuticals, finance, and probably some other stuff that I don't know about. But let's talk about the chicken. What you're eating at the CP Five Star may have been purchased from one of CP's own processing plants. A processing plant is where the chicken is slaughtered and prepared for further sales. So maybe you're going to mix that chicken with spices and you might freeze it so that somebody can have their chicken sausage for breakfast. But a lot of the restaurants are using processed chicken products, like chicken patties and stuff that you make burgers out of. I don't think that uh, CP has a processing plant in Pakistan, so it's even possible that the chicken was imported from a CP processing plant, maybe somewhere like Malaysia. Pakistan imports a lot of processed chicken goods from Malaysia. The chickens that are processed in a CP plant are probably raised on a massive CP farm somewhere, maybe in Thailand, maybe in Malaysia, where tens of thousands of chickens are concentrated in pretty packed conditions. Or the chickens may have been raised by farmers who are contracted by CP. So they may be smaller farmers, but they're not exactly independent. All of the essentials that the farmers need to raise that chicken would have been supplied by CP itself, from the eggs to be hatched or the chicks to be raised, to the medicine used, to the food that the chickens are eating, that's supplied by CP. The feed that the chickens are eating uh, would also be produced from maize or other such crops at a CP feed mill. And in fact, there is a CP feed mill in Pakistan. It's just outside of Lahore. So if you go past Raiwind, then you'll see that there's a CP Lahore feed mill, or at least it's there on Google. It seems to have opened in the early 2010s. So let's go back to that CP five star. And what you can see is that from the very top, the restaurant operation where you actually buy a CP five star chicken burger to the bottom, where the CP produces feed for the chicken, it's all more or less controlled by the same corporation. Uh, in fact, even before it opened its own restaurant, CP Five Star, CP bought a whole bunch of KFCs and opened those, KFCs, Kentucky Fried Chickens, and it opened those in Thailand so that there would be a market for its own product. So you're selling your own products to yourself that then get sold to end consumers. The other thing that's really interesting about this is how its production line is spread out all over the world. So from like Turkey to Indonesia to Pakistan to India to Vietnam. But that's a question that we can address later. This top to bottom control is called vertical integration. And it's driven by what many economists have called the livestock revolution. That's the increased demand for meat. And a lot of that demand for meat is being driven by urban populations in the third world. So in the global south, that's basically you and me, the chicken that we eat at KFC, the meat that we eat at McDonald's, even the chicken that we eat at home that maybe we purchased from Sufi or Saboro, even the meat that you get in your neighborhood, like those broiler chickens that some guy is selling on a cart, that's still us and our demand for meat. Uh, and if you remember, it was Prime Minister Imran Khan's idea for lifting people out of poverty to uh, get them to grow chickens, I think, or was it eggs? This demand for meat is pretty new. So my father tells me that when he was growing up in his village, you would only eat chicken like three or four times a year. And that was when the damat or the son-in-law came to visit, or maybe it was Eid. And there's the proverb amongst 
farmers even now that you only really eat a chicken in two circumstances either you get sick that's when the chicken gets slaughtered or when the chicken gets sick that's when the chicken gets slaughtered so this thing about eating meat it was barely part of our diets but now it's become so commonplace for middle class or affluent consumers in the cities everything that we're going to talk about is based on a deep inequality in who's eating and who is not eating i think the majority don't get to eat it regularly So what does this story of vertical integration have to do with viruses and epidemics? To figure that out, we got to figure out a little bit of biology first. Before the novel coronavirus, most epidemiologists were worried about influenza. And they're still worried about influenza. It's not that that's gone away, the threat's not gone. Since the 1980s and 1990s, there's been an explosion basically of influenza types that may be able to infect humans that are able to infect humans before the 1980s and 1990s it was a little more contained there were relatively stable the influenza types where does influenza come from basically it seems to come from water-based birds or waterfowl like ducks they carry influenza in the wild and it seems like many migratory birds can carry influenza cuz so many of these waterfowl are, are are migratory like geese and i don't i don't really know much about waterfowl but uh influenza like all viruses and really like all organisms or creatures is constantly evolving what that means is that it's picking up new genes uh, genes not the pants but uh genes are basically a string of dna that codes for proteins and molecules in your cells that really keep us functioning or that make us look the way that we look viruses can pick up new genes or they can evolve new genes usually when influenza infects a bird it targets the stomachs of the birds and for the most part it's pretty harmless like uh ducks just you know waddle around with their influenza that's what they do but when it hits other kinds of birds it can be devastating or if these influenza they evolve into new strains they can be devastating they can actually be very dangerous but in the wild there's basically two broad factors that lead to new viruses burning out a virus needs a host to survive so there's two ways that it can burn out the first is genetic diversity which can act as what rob wallace calls an immune firebreak what do we mean by an immune firebreak it's basically that some individuals may be naturally resistant to infection let me give you an example from our dealing with sars-cov-2 or the novel coronavirus in order for sars to get into your cell it needs to latch on to a receptor that's called angiotensin converting enzyme 2 or ace 2 for simplicity so ace 2 is a surface receptor and as i said corona needs to latch on to that in order to get into your cell but some people their bodies seem to produce less ace 2 so there may be some people who are innately resistant to coronavirus because the coronavirus just cannot latch on to their cells not as easily at least as other people now having less of ace 2 in normal times is probably not a good thing because ace 2 is important to regulate different functions in your cells and it can help with healing but it may help to avoid corona infection this is how genetic diversity can help block these new diseases 
But imagine if we all had one kind of ACE2 expression that might have made the coronavirus much worse than it actually was. So that's one factor where genetic diversity gives innate resistance to new infections. The second factor that prevents a virus from spreading too far is its virulence. And virulence means how damaging a virus can be, can impose a cost on the possibility of that virus transmitting itself. So what we mean by this is, let's say a virus is really deadly and it infects a host and it really quickly kills that host, but there is nobody else around, then that virus is just, it's done. It burns out. But if there's a whole bunch of hosts around, then it can jump to them pretty quickly. Now, in order to be able to get to another host, the kinds of virus that will survive are those that are less deadly. So that once they've infected a host, they can kind of wait until that host connects with somebody else, and then they can jump to the new host. And this way, it's those less virulent viruses that will evolve. It could be that you know a virus will kill off a flock of birds because it's so virulent, but then that's kind of where it burns out because there are no other flocks of birds nearby. So it's these two factors, genetic diversity and the virulence being reduced by the distance between hosts. These two factors are exactly what does not exist in the vertically integrated factory farms that we're talking about. So let's think back to the conditions under which chickens are raised by large agribusiness companies like the CP Group. You can have tens of thousands of chickens that are packed into these cramped conditions and potentially millions of chickens in close proximity to each other, just like a farm, then another farm, then somebody else's farm. So tens and tens and tens of thousands of chickens are just all in more or less the same space. And they might be hanging out or built with farms that also have pigs and other kinds of things, which we'll get to in a second. So everybody is looking to grow as many chickens as they can for economies of scale, which we'll explain also. These chickens are bred for certain qualities. And the breeder lines, a breeder line is a chicken from which you breed other chickens, are carefully managed by a handful of multinational companies. So you can see that in Pakistan, for some weird reason, we import millions of dollars worth of chickens from the Netherlands and France. Why? I think it's because those are breeder lines for our broilers and layer chickens. Now let's talk about broilers. I've never talked about chickens so much in my life. Broiler chickens are the chickens that we eat. And layer chickens, you guessed it, those are the chickens that lay eggs. What you want to do with broiler chickens is that you want them to gain as much meat as possible in as little time as possible using as little feed as possible. You want the meat to be tender and juicy so that uh, you can just all but consume it. And you want to slaughter those chickens as soon as you can because you want turnover so that you can keep slaughtering chickens and make more profit. The layer chickens, we want to give them as many eggs as they can lay in a short amount of time. And once they're past that age, we'll just get rid of those chickens. We generally don't eat layer chickens. We make fat or oil out of them, or we make compost out of them, or we chop them up and feed them to other animals. It's, it's pretty grisly. Here we have two conditions that make these birds really susceptible to disease. First of all, there's no social distancing. They're all crammed into this confined space. Animals need to socially distance too if they're going to avoid diseases. And if these cramped chickens get infected by a new virus, then that virus spreads through them really, really quickly. 
the transmission rate is faster, and that means that a virus can afford to be more virulent. It can afford to kill those birds more quickly. Second, when you're breeding chickens to all be pretty much the same, remember there's a handful of breeder lines that are managed by a handful of companies, then those chickens look the same inside and out. You've eliminated genetic diversity and you produce what is called a genetic monoculture. And monoculture just means of one type. So with this genetic monoculture, you've wiped out that immune firebreak that Rob Wallace is talking about. In the wild, or at least in the more traditional forms of chicken production that uh, were undertaken by small farmers in their backyards, there's just like different kinds of chickens running around mating with different kinds of chickens. I mean, to be clear, farmers are, are mating chickens for certain qualities, but not this kind of uniformity that we see in factory farming. And what happens with the kind of breeding that's happening by backyard farmers is that there's a mix. There's a relatively healthy mix of genes and genetic diversity that get passed on to different generations. So we can make chickens more resilient to new diseases. But increasingly, small farmers cannot survive growing chickens the old way because they cannot compete with the economies of scale and technologies that these big companies have. So if small farmers are going to grow these chickens, they have to do it on the terms that are dictated by these big corporations. That means that even chickens that seem to be grown in backyards are increasingly these genetically monocultured kinds of chickens, right? Those broiler chickens that are packed in small farms now instead of these giant farms. We basically get rid of these immune firebreaks and it's these two factors, the lack of social distancing and the lack of genetic diversity that increases susceptibility. Now, what do viruses in chickens have to do with viruses in, in humans? It's like, that. thanks for that, uh, that biology lesson about chicken viruses. The thing is that in many parts of the world, these farms are encroaching on forest lands, or they're encroaching into places where waterfowl, like ducks, were also grown by small farmers alongside the chickens that they're now growing for these companies. You know, they're encroaching basically into wetland as well, which is where these waterfowl hang out. So that increases the chances for transmission, that by reducing the distance or the boundary between what is wild and what is not, you increase the possibility of transmission of new viruses into these chicken monocultures. Guangdong province in China is an example of a setup like this, where ducks and chickens are in close proximity. The other example of this is Netherlands. So the Dutch also have these kinds of setups where the chickens and the ducks are, are chilling in close proximity. And remember, Netherlands is where we in Pakistan seem to import a lot of chickens that we use as breeders for our own stock. So the system of factory farming has created a lot more opportunities for viruses to jump from wild birds to domesticated birds. And once they're infected, these chickens are being transported everywhere. They're being sold to markets, they're being slaughtered all over the place. And all along the way, they're shedding virus. They're shedding virus that can be picked up by other birds, by birds that are migratory birds, and they may take them to other places. So it's in these ways that the virus can spread. Very importantly, influenza viruses can jump from birds to the humans who are in, in close contact with them. And if the virus mutates, if it evolves, then it can also develop the capacity for human-to-human -human transmission. And just as likely, uh, in fact, even more likely, that 
pathway might be achieved through pigs or through swine. Why is that? Because, I mean, we don't grow pig in Pakistan. But the thing about pigs is that, to put it in simple terms, they have these proteins on their cells that resemble the kinds of proteins that birds have, and they have proteins that resemble the ones that humans have. So a virus can go from a bird into a pig and then acquire the kinds of mutations that can make it easy for it to infect human beings. So that's why a lot of influenza can actually be traced back to swine. Although we don't grow pigs in Pakistan, the CP group also produces swine. Again, those swine farms are packed full of thousands of swine and they're located pretty close to these chicken farms. So you have hundreds of thousands and even millions of chickens and pigs and other animals just milling about in close proximity to each other. So a bird virus can mutate pretty easily into something that can infect humans in a pig, or a virus can go from humans to pigs and infect birds, so it can go the other way too. And the possibilities are endless. In fact, in June 2020, so just a few months ago, scientists found a new flu virus with pandemic potential in pig farms in China. They say it's not an immediate problem, and let's hope it isn't. It doesn't matter that we don't eat or grow pigs because once a virus jumps from a pig to a human in Mexico or USA or Holland or China, then it can spread all over the world. And we saw that with the coronavirus. And we'll figure out some of these interconnections that help transmission so fast next week. For now, let's just understand that the way that factory farming has spread across so many places and the way that it's all vertically integrated has helped create since the 1980s and 1990s what Rob Wallace calls a veritable zoo of newly evolved human-specific influenzas. And this is basically the title of his 2016 book, Big Farms Make Big Flu. Okay, so what does all of this have to do with capitalism? See, for Rob Wallace and Mike Davis, it's not just big farms or big industry in and of itself is the problem. They want to locate the big farms and those big industries, agribusiness, in the global economy. And for this, they want to go back to understanding the economic and political system within which factory farming is encouraged and protected. So let's talk about capitalism, because this term keeps coming up in political economy and different people may use it differently or point to different aspects of it. For example, the very important sociologist Max Weber, we're going to discuss him in a few weeks, but he has his own way of defining capitalism, which may be a little bit different from, say, the way that uh, another German, Karl Marx, defines capitalism. So for Wallace and Davis, it's pretty clear that they're drawing on Karl Marx. Marx sees capitalism as a mode of production. A mode of production refers to the systemic organization of how production, distribution, and consumption is carried out in a society. So this concept is important for Marx because he wants to emphasize that production can be carried out in different ways in different societies at different times. And the way that we're used to doing it now doesn't have to be the way that we have to do it in the future. This is what Marx is talking about when he wants to get to socialism or communism. He's saying, look, capitalism has a history, and that means it can have an end. It has a beginning, so it can have an end. Capitalism is a specific mode of production in history. Even within a mode of production, 
there can be changes that shape how production is organized. So within capitalism, if there's shifts in technology, if there's shifts in relations and, and forces of production, then you can shift how production is organized. So for example, as Wallace points out, these vertically integrated farms that we're talking about are a new invention in human history. They've only been around since the 1950s in the United States, and they've only been around since the 1980s or 1990s in Thailand, China, and even Pakistan. Before that, most of the chickens that were being produced were being produced in small farms, backyards, and stuff like that. So there's a transformation in how chicken production is organized. So that's the kind of thing that we're pointing to is the historical specificity of organization. At its broadest, capitalism is just investing money or capital to make more money, a profit. So if I have some money, I'm going to buy some goods and then I'll go somewhere else and sell those goods at a higher price. And the difference is my profit. And I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. But the thing that makes capitalism a mode of production is not simply the trading part of it, the exchange part of capitalism. It's the productive capitalism. It's that you take your capital and you invest it in buying like a factory or buying tools of production, means of production, and you invest your capital in purchasing labor power, the capacity of a worker to work, and then you organize that stuff so that that worker is using those tools and means of production to make new things, to make new commodities. And then you sell those commodities on the market. Hopefully you're going to sell them for more than it costs you to make that stuff. And in that way, you're going to make a profit. So capitalism as a mode of production is about productive capital, not just exchange capital. And the whole thing about capitalism that defines it as a system is this relentless pursuit of profit. I make a profit. I'm going to take that money. I'm going to invest it again so that I can make more of a profit. And then I'll take that profit, I'll invest it again to make more of a profit. This process, this continuous process, is called accumulation. So accumulation of capital, accumulation of profit. The second dimension of capitalism that we're going to deal with today is about the production of commodities. A commodity is something that is produced so that it can be bought or sold on the market. That's the whole point of a commodity. It's for buying or selling. If we think about the way that we live, we're very, very much dependent on commodities. That means we're very much dependent on buying and selling things. We're market dependent. We buy most of the things we need with money instead of making that stuff ourselves or trading with other people. You know, we don't barter. We go and we buy stuff on a market. And even food, clothing, and shelter, which are some very basic things, are commodities. We buy those on the market. So capitalism is about generalized commodity production. And part of what you're going to do as a capitalist is see if you cannot come up with new commodities for people to purchase. Or you might turn something that used to be not on the market into something that now can only be purchased on a market. So you turn things into commodities. That's called commodification. And commodification can also refer to an intensification of what you're doing with a commodity. So chickens, back in the day, you sell your chicken, people eat the chicken. Cool. But now what you do is you've got chicken nuggets, you've got chicken fingers, you've got chicken strips, you've got chicken burgers, you've got chicken this, chicken that. You've made new commodities out of this old commodity. So this is a process of commodification and intensification of it. 
capitalists will invest in marketing and try to cheapen their product so that as many people can buy them as possible. They're creating new needs, in other words, right? Like, I need my chicken burger. I need my KFC. There's other aspects of capitalism, and we can deal with those later. And those revolve around why is it that some people have capital in the first place and other people do not? And what is the source of profit? So for Marxists, the source of profit is surplus value, which comes from the exploitation of workers. But that's a discussion for a different day. For now, let's just remember these two aspects, profit accumulation and generalized commodity production. And let's get back to chickens. So as Rob Wallace is pointing out, the vertical integration of livestock production is a result of capitalists saying, how best do we make a profit out of livestock? Bringing livestock production into these factory farms enables economies of scale. And that means that at a large scale, every new unit of capital or labor that you input will actually give you more outputs at a larger scale. So let me give you an example. I can hire one worker to take care of five chickens because that's all I have. But now if I have 10 chickens, I probably don't need to hire another worker. Probably one worker can take care of those, those 10 chickens instead of five. Or if you put it in a different way, instead of having thousands of farms with a handful of chickens on each farm, I can have a handful of farms with thousands of chickens on each farm. That's economies of scale. And on that scale, I cut my costs and I increase my outputs, which means profits. That's what I'm going for. So in order to maximize my profits, I want these chickens to grow as big as they can in as short a time as possible. We've spoken about this. Rob Wallace talks about how they got the time for slaughter down from 60 days to 40 days. The point here is that I want to be able to manufacture my product as cheaply as possible. And that means doing it as quickly as possible, making my product uniform, all of those things that make sense for, say, a plastic box. We want to apply that logic to chicken as well. So it's this logic of profit maximization that for Wallace and Davis lies behind the factory farm and the dangerous conditions that can be breeding grounds for these new diseases. The other part of it, though, is that capitalists because they're rich, can also exercise a lot of influence on governments and policymaking. And so that means that the response to disease outbreaks can often be one of covering up and delaying a response rather than taking charge of the situation. So for example, in 2003, there was a breakout of avian influenza in Southeast Asia, but most governments were denying it. Chickens started dying on farms across China, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand. And of course, there's always the danger that this can go from chickens to humans. This particular influenza even reached Karachi in 2004, and it resulted in a massive loss to the poultry industry. So it was really spreading. And by 2004, it was pretty clear that at least some of the people in close contact with the chickens were also dying of a severe flu, but that's where it ended. Thankfully, the transmission was just from bird to human and not from human to human. The key, though, is to understand how the poultry producers, the agribusiness, were trying to underplay the whole situation. They were like, yeah, no, nothing's really happening. It's not a major problem. Trade unionists in Thailand complained that even as these birds were dying off, one company increased daily processing by the thousands. Rather than getting shut down for having influenza-infected birds, they were just increasing the processing to try and get them out as soon as possible. CP and other giant poultry producers had been denying that there was any flu in their factories. They'd been colluding with the government, so the government politicians were colluding with them to try and hide this epidemic. And this wasn't just in Thailand, this was also happening in other countries. 
in some ways for these big multinationals, it doesn't really matter what happens in one particular country. So for example, if Australia bans imports from Thailand, because it seems like there's avian influenza in Thailand, then the CP group can just increase its outputs from, you know, a plant in Malaysia or a plant in Japan, because those countries are not banned. And so in either case, the company makes a profit. Because these companies are operating on this big scale, they can avoid losses, but workers who are working in those factories that get shut down, or smaller farmers who are ordered to cull their flocks, they will experience a lot of loss. Epidemics don't just break out in Asia. There are other epidemics that have broken out in Canada, in the Netherlands, in the United States. It's not just an East Asian problem, but it seems like, as far as we know, most of these have not been of direct danger to humans. Because of the way that capitalist industry organizes production and the way that it can increase the possibility of diseases emerging and then jumping to humans from wildlife, Rob Wallace says that agribusiness, backed by state power, home and abroad, is now working as much with influenza as against it. We're creating the conditions that enable influenza to spread and we want to cover up and we want to get subsidies and we want to keep this way of making chicken to keep going, then effectively we're with influenza as much as we're against it. To put into economic terms, what Rob Wallace is saying is that the rise of new influenzas, the rise of new diseases is an externality of the agribusiness industry. It's a cost that arises in this vertically integrated model, but that cost is not absorbed into the model. That cost has to be borne outside of the model. It has to be borne by governments, by healthcare systems, by nurses, by doctors, by workers, by everybody else but the company itself. When the costs are being dealt not by the, the actual producer of the cost, that's called an externality. Anyway, in 2004, the human-to-human -human transmission of influenza was limited, so we were lucky. But as the novel coronavirus we're dealing with right now shows, if not an influenza virus, it could be a different kind of virus. Is it fair to think of the novel coronavirus that we're dealing with right now as an externality of capitalist agriculture or capitalist production? The evidence that we have is pretty slim. So the origins of SARS-CoV-2 virus, the novel coronavirus, which causes COVID-19, has often been said to have been these wet markets of Wuhan in the Hubei province in China. We have plenty of wet markets in Pakistan too. That just means a place where live animals are being sold with other kinds of animals. And Chinese wet markets are seen with suspicion because they often sell wild animals there as well. So there's this idea floating around that somebody ate a bat and uh, that caused the transmission of this virus from the wild into human beings. But the evidence that's emerging is, suggests that there may have been an intermediate animal host where the virus evolved to its current form. This animal host would have to have a high population density so that evolution could proceed efficiently with certain genes that are similar to human genes. This could be civets, which is a kind of wild cat, or pangolins, pigs, cats, cows, buffaloes, goats, sheep, pigeons. Basically, that sounds like they just listed every animal. It's because even wild animals like pangolins or civets are intensively farmed. What this means is that these exotic animals do not exist outside of capitalist production. They're actually being produced in a capitalistic way by capitalists who are linked to the producers of the kinds of animals that we're more used to eating. 
Or you can imagine another scenario where factory farming, and we can talk about palm oil plantations in Malaysia, and Pakistan imports a lot of its palm oil from Malaysia. Anyway, palm oil plantations, in order to plant them, you end up destroying a lot of forests and you force a lot of ecological destruction. And these huge monocultures of palm oil enforce genetic uniformity of palm oil. Uh, and at the same time, bats and other wild animals are forced out of the forest and into the fields, into the plantations. Something like this happened with the outbreak of something called the Nipah virus in Malaysia in 1998. The Nipah, by the way, is not an influenza or a coronavirus. It's a different kind. But it comes from fruit-eating bats. And a lot of pig farms in Malaysia, Malaysia is a Muslim country, but they do have non-Muslims and they grow pigs. So a lot of these pig farms in Malaysia have fruit trees. And many of these factory farms encroached on what used to be forest land. So it seems like the bats came out of these forests and they might have gotten onto a fruit tree on one of these farms. Then they ate some of that fruit and their spit got on that fruit and then it fell. And then maybe some pig on that pig farm came around and was like, oh, look, this, this fruit. And, and then the pig starts eating that fruit and gets infected. And when the pig gets infected, then that Nipah virus cuts right through these thousands and thousands of pigs that are on that farm because they're all genetically uniform. And that acts as this kind of evolutionary field where the virus can then evolve to something that can infect humans. And that's exactly what happened. If you've seen uh, Steven Soderbergh's film Contagion, and I don't know if you want to watch it right now because we're literally kind of living the scenario that the film describes. At the end of that film, there's a scene that dramatizes this thing that I just talked about. Similarly, we're pretty sure that other coronaviruses have gone through intermediate hosts to humans. So there's the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS virus, which went from bats to camels. And those camels were being intensively farmed, you know, again, on capitalist conditions, capitalist lines. And then there were people hanging out with those camels, and the virus then jumped from bats to camels to humans. And the first SARS outbreak, that was from 2003, 2004, we know that that went from bats to civets. Civets, again, are a kind of cat. And the civets were also intensively farmed. And then from there, they jumped to humans. So going by how other coronaviruses or even other viruses like Nipah or other forms of influenza have gone from wildlife to humans, it seems like they often go through these intermediate hosts animals that are being farmed intensively along capitalist lines. What about the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2? Is that a similar pathway? We don't know for sure yet. So I don't want to say, yes, that's exactly what happened. We don't have the evidence. And if we don't have the evidence, we shouldn't make claims. But going by past jumps of species jumps, it seems like that could have been the case. So it's one thing to talk about where viruses come from, or rather how they jump from wild species to domestic species to humans, and what capitalist production has to do with this. It's quite another to ask how these giants of agribusiness have operations in so many countries. Turkey, Pakistan, Indonesia, India, Vietnam, and CP Group has operations everywhere. And does all of this global integration of production have anything to do with how viruses get transmitted, how they go from one country to another, spread around the world in a matter of days. So this is a little bit of what we're going to touch on next week. For now, remember that for Wallace and Davis, the way food is produced under capitalism is not sustainable. 
when you're operating in a capitalist system, your priority is making profits. And to do that, you're going to produce as much of a commodity as cheaply as possible. You want to keep your manufacturing prices low. To produce cheaply, you create these monocultures of one type and you want to grow that as fast as possible in as small a time and space as possible so that you can keep this production going on and on. And this is the base of a capitalist way of organizing production, of organizing capitalist agriculture, ever bigger, ever greater economies of scale. But what ends up happening is that these genetic monocultures get rid of genetic diversity, which can act as an immune firebreak on new diseases spreading. It gives animals innate resistance. But they also pack these animals in spaces so tight that new diseases can spread quickly and easily. And as farms encroach on what used to be wild spaces or as deforestation occurs, then the spillovers of virus from wildlife to domesticated animals becomes easier. So it's not that the capitalist organization of agriculture may produce new diseases that will spread rapidly. What Wallace and Davis are saying is that that has already happened and that this happens enough. And until now, it's just been luck that we've been spared a virus like, you know, COVID-19, the novel coronavirus. But I guess our luck has run out. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. Until next time.